Oh, what a, what a good day. You know, these things are sad. You might have um, people around you that um, are going through stuff this season as well. It's a really good time to remember that while we're ramping up on joy, um, there are people around us that are hurting. And in fact, that's what I want to talk with you a little bit about today. We're parking ourselves in Philippians chapter 1 again. We started that last week, and we kind of dealt with the first half of the chapter. We're going to deal with the second half of the chapter today. And so if you have your Bible, your phone, whatever, and if not, you can look at some, most of the message notes or the, the passages will be in your message notes inside the little brochure here, all right? And you can follow along, fill in the blanks. I'm calling today, Joy in Whatever Happens. Joy in Whatever Happens. Now, this is the book of Philippians, which is a letter Paul wrote to a church at Caesarea Philippi or Caesar's city at Philippi. Caesar's city, that's why it's called Caesarea Philippi. And Paul uh, was in Philippi for a while, and uh, the story of him starting the church there is told for us in the Bible in Acts chapter 16. And when you read Acts chapter 16 and you compare it to the letter he wrote about his experience there, they're out of sync with each other. Philippians, the letter we have, is the epistle of joy. Over and over and over again, joy is mentioned. Joy, 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 rejoice. I find joy this language of joy over and over again. But when you read Acts 16, it talks about trouble. All the trouble Paul had gone through when he was starting this church at Philippi. It was difficult. He was in prison. He was beaten. He was falsely accused. In fact, from the time he started the church at Philippi, Paul will have been in prison four years from that point moving forward. Four years in prison. Two in prison and then two under lock and key on his way to Rome to meet Caesar, to appeal his case to Caesar. Paul was a Roman citizen as well as a Jewish citizen, and he had certain rights, and because he was falsely accused, um, he appealed his case to Caesar. And they didn't have, you know, jet planes, and the passage from certain parts of the empire back to Rome would take a while, and it took two years. So two years in a prison that was dark and, and, and damp and, 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 and very, very ugly for him, just a rough time. And then two years under lock and key as he went all the way to Rome and ultimately never left Rome and and suffers death in Rome. And it all begins with our story here. So our epistle of joy is kind of out of sync with his life, circumstances. And yet Paul was able somehow to find joy in whatever was happening to him. Now, I, I haven't learned that secret. I haven't learned how to have internal joy, you know, joy, 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 down in my heart, yes, down in my heart, yes, down in my heart. I haven't learned how to have joy, 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 down in my heart, no matter what was going on with me. For those of you that grew up in church, you know that's a kid's song we used to sing. I wasn't like stuttering there for just a second, all right? I haven't learned how to do that yet. I haven't learned how to have all that kind of joy in my life. But Paul had learned how to do it. No matter how rough his circumstances were, what we're going to look at today is three I'm sorry, four prayers, four prayers that we can pray in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in that I think will help open the door to joy for us, will help open the door to joy for us. And it could be that maybe your situation this year is a little bit less than, you know, maybe Bubba's where you lost somebody close and dear to you, but it could be as you drive around and see the Christmas lights and hear the songs that you are out of sync with the season as everybody else else is kind of ramping up. Maybe you are contemplating or perhaps even ramping down. I know this, that even if you're not going through a rough season, sometimes Christians don't look like 
people full of joy. They look sour. They kind of look like basset hounds, if you will. Uh, not trying to be critical, just a little truth in advertising here. Did you know that our word happiness is connected to the word happenstance? Happenstance. We get our word happiness from the same roots that we get our word happenstance, which means happy situation or happy circumstances. So happiness can be very circumstantially Related. If our circumstances change, we feel happy. And if you're going through a rough time today, it could be that you're thinking, maybe if my circumstances change, I'll be happier. And perhaps that's true. But for Paul, when we look at his experience, we're going to discover that no matter what his circumstances were, whatever was happening, he learned to have joy. Two years in prison, two years under lock and key in travel. I want to talk to you for just a second about how that looked for him. Not to paint a, a dark picture, but I want to show you something unique that happened to Paul. He lost every bit of privacy in his life when he was in prison. He was always under observation. And even when he was out of prison and he began to make his journey to Rome, he was always literally shackled to a Roman soldier. And not just any Roman soldier. He was shackled literally to the, a, a member of the Praetorian Guard. These are the, the highest, the elite, handpicked by Caesar himself, a, a, a regiment of, of soldiers who were handpicked, highly paid, and ultimately when these soldiers would retire, they became the ruling elite class in Rome. It was the quickest path to move from kind of peasantry, if you could distinguish yourself and be chosen, to move into kind of the aristocracy in Rome. So there, it, was, it was a heavily desired position. Only a few people made it. But if you did, it was a big deal. And these are the people literally shackled to Paul 24 hours a day in four-hour shifts as he makes his way from a dark prison all the way to Rome, appealing his trial and his false charges. These are the people who got to see him every minute of every day. No privacy, no freedom. He couldn't even go to the bathroom by himself. He was never without a soldier. Six times a day, they shifted. So over the couple of years that he was there, there were some 4,000 different shifts of soldiers there who were watching his every move. And they got to watch Paul do a lot of things. They got to watch him pray. They literally got to watch Paul write all kinds of letters. Those letters we call our New Testament. They literally got to see Paul do life, watch his attitude, hear him talk about what was important, receive visitors, and watch those conversations, watched him literally write the New Testament. That must have been cool. All under the umbrella, though, of him being a, him being a prisoner in chains. In Philippians, he talks a little bit about this. Our first blank there that we're going to discover in the passage we're going to read is the first prayer we can pray, I think, to find joy in whatever's going on in our lives. It goes something like this. God, help me to see my challenges from your perspective. That's our first blank. Help me to see my challenges from your perspective. See, there's our problems, and then there's how we look at our problems. There's the real challenge we're facing that can be very difficult. And then there's our perspective about our challenge. And this perspective can make our challenges look very different than what they really are. Sometimes some of us have real problems, but it's not on our radar. The people around us know it's a big deal, but it's not on our radar in the same way. So we have a really big problem, but we're not aware of it. Other times we have a problem, but our perspective of that problem makes the problem even worse than it really is. Our perspective has a big impact on our joy. Paul learned 
that whatever circumstance he was in, that he could look at things just from his perspective, and that would give him a certain view, or he could begin to look at things from the perspective of heaven, from God's perspective, at the same challenges, and that gave him often a very entirely different perspective of what was going on in his life. And so in Philippians chapter 1, verse 12, we begin to get a sense of this. Here's what our passage says. Now, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has actually served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. And because of my chains, most of my brothers and sisters have become confident in the Lord and dare all the more to proclaim the gospel without fear. Never our private moment, always under lock and key, can't do anything without asking permission. And when Paul writes about this situation, he doesn't describe how difficult it is, although I'm sure it was. He describes a different scenario, perspective of heaven that says, all the stuff that has happened to me actually helped the gospel to go forward. While my life got more difficult, the kingdom of God grew. While things happened to me that I didn't welcome, God's kingdom grew. Every guard shackled to him got to watch Paul pray and talk, got to watch his attitude, got to watch him write the New Testament. And I don't know if you know this, but a little bit later on, you discover that there are people who are connected to Caesar, Nero himself, who's not very friendly to Christians. Nero like, didn't like him kind of blamed the burning of Rome on Christians, and he sent Christians to an incredible persecution. There were members of Nero's household who became Christians. In fact, one historian writes, an ancient historian writes, that Nero's wife and children actually become friendly and converts to Christianity, and that's part of the reason Nero had them killed. He wasn't a very pleasant guy. And the direct connection to Nero's house becoming Christianized and converted is connected literally to these praetorian guards that are shackled to Paul. While he's in prison, he's witnessing. Every four hours, there's somebody new. And they get to watch the Apostle Paul pray and write and talk about the things of God and what's important to God. And it has, a in, it has an immeasurable impact on Christianity and on the spread of the gospel. Not only that, he says, there are people who are watching me and and. and and in that world, being a Christian was very difficult and tough, but they are encouraged. In fact, they're gaining confidence as they watch me suffer. It gives them the ability in their world to deal with what's in front of them. So Paul could have looked at a situation in a very, through, through very negative eyes, but instead he decided to look at it through the perspective of heaven, and it begins to change how he sees things. And when you read these passages, our next sentence there, here's how I've worded it, is that God's perspective, it brings clarity. It helps us to see what's really going on, but it also reduces fear in our lives. He had every reason to be afraid. The, the pathway towards his death has already begun. Paul is literally going to be beheaded at the end of this journey that starts at Philippi. He's going to lose his life. But there's not one moment of fear expressed in him. There's something that happens to us when we're in challenges. I don't know if it happens to you or not, but I can get demotivated. I can get frustrated. I can get fearful. It can actually make me stop in my tracks sometimes. Paul says, if that's your tendency at all, try looking at your problems from heaven's perspective. 
Try looking at your problems from heaven's perspective. And when you do that, it'll give you clarity to what's really going on, and it will help you mitigate fear. It'll help you mitigate fear. There's something powerful that happens when we look at our challenges from the lenses of heaven. In another place, Paul wrote about it in Romans 8, 28. It gets often quoted, but it's appropriate to what we're talking about now. Paul wrote about it this way. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. Not all things are good, but in all things, God works for the good. And our problems, what they ultimately help us do is they help us refocus on heaven's perspective. This causes some skeptics of our faith to look at us and say, your religion is a crutch for you. It just helps you get through the rough times. And that's not a totally incorrect statement. Our religion does help us get through the rough times, but it's not a false hope that we have. It's just that we're changing our perspective. I'm learning that in my marriages, in marriages, I'm plural, I'm, I'm Mormon. I'm Mormon. In my marriage, that the challenges we face really, as I'm getting older, I'm learning they're an opportunity for my faith in Christ to grow, for me to grow as a disciple and how I love and respond to the challenges in front of me. I'm learning that as a parent, the challenges I have are really an opportunity for me to grow as a disciple as I help my kids navigate the challenges in front of them. Yeah, our perspective has a dramatic, and I'm going to tell you, this doesn't come easy for me. Some of us are more positive and we can see it, you know, and others of us, it takes discipline. But for Paul, he learned that for him, his circumstances could change, but his joy was on a more stable trajectory. And I think that this prayer, God, help me to see this challenge, whatever it is, fill in the blank, from your perspective can help us. Here's another prayer we can pray. God, help me to live by your priorities. Help me to live by your priorities. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 18, here's how Paul wrote it. He said, but what does it matter, these circumstances that I'm going through? The important thing, that's the language of priority. What's at the top of the list, what's most important, is that in every way, whether from false motive or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Not only was Paul in shackles, but he writes, if you read the, the passage, you can read it in five minutes. If you go home today, chapter 1 of Philippians, he writes that not only is he getting... Uh, difficulty because of the, the shackles he's under, but there are people in the church who are accusing him of having bad motivation or being an absent leader, and, and, and he talks big when he's not here, but if he were around, he wouldn't talk like this. And so he's being kind of uh, assaulted from his group, and, and, and it's really difficult to manage a church moving forward when that kind of dynamic is happening. But Paul says it this way. He says, what does it matter? What does it matter if by false motives or by good motives, if people are talking about Jesus, that's the right thing. The priority is the work of God, not my experience of it. The priority is, is that the message of Jesus gets out. And it doesn't matter if they're doing it for good reasons, bad reasons, mechanically healthy, relationally unhealthy. It doesn't matter. If the message of Jesus is moving forward, Paul says, I'm going to take joy in the fact that the work of God is growing. It's a really big deal for him to give credit to God's work versus looking for the credit to come to him. Now, you know this, our next blank, few things can cause us to lose joy like criticism. Now, if you're 
heavily engaged in a work and you get some unwelcomed criticism, especially if it's not packaged well, even if you believe all criticism is a gift, right? All feedback is a gift. Even if you believe all that stuff, it can still, if you're not careful, rob you of joy. And Paul was in a time of significant criticism. And he was in prison. He couldn't face things directly. He was literally hand-tied. And it would be natural for joy to leak out of the joy bucket. But for him, as long as the gospel was going forward, as long as the most important things were happening, he was able to find a certain amount of joy. Let me ask you a question about your marriage. How many of you have had arguments in your marriage, maybe more than one, over things that don't really matter? Well, what happens in those situations is our joy buckets can leak. We have arguments over things that don't really matter. You know, Burger King versus McDonald's, blue versus red, whatever. Toilet seat up, toilet seat down. Doesn't matter. Oh, it matters. I see. I see. That, that's what's wrong in my marriage. It's clear. Great insight there. Things that don't even matter. But what happens is, is they leak. What if, what if, if we prayed this prayer, God help me to live by your priorities, and that God's priorities become our priorities, what happens is then these petty things take their right place. And even if there are things we have to work through, they don't rob us of joy. One of the things that Jill and I have been challenged to do lately is to think of our challenges in light of eternity. So our question there is, in light of eternity, how much will this really matter? And if eternity seems like a long time, you can do something like this. In 10 years, is this thing even going to matter? How about in five Jill and I have argued about things that 10 minutes later didn't matter anymore. It's an issue of priorities. And I think that by praying a prayer, God, help me to live by your priorities, it can help us to walk through this season with greater joy. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 6, my favorite single verse in all the Bible. Seek first God's kingdom. That's a priority statement. And when right things and top things are in their right place and at the top places, other things have the ability to keep their right place. Here's the truth. You will either live your life by your priorities or you will live your life by your problems. You will either live your life by your priorities or you'll live your life by your problems. And if you can set some priorities, I would suggest to you God's priorities in your life. It allows you to engage your problems then with a sense of focus and direction. And you're not just responding to whatever comes up in your life and to everybody else's agenda. You literally get to set your own with the Lord. That's what Paul had done. Yeah, there's a lot I can't control and people are talking about me and I don't like my circumstances. But the things I care most about, that's happening. And the gospel of Jesus is going forward. Here's a third prayer we can pray. God, help me to know that with your power, nothing can destroy me. Nothing can destroy me. The problems can be real. But I won't be consumed. I won't be devastated. It gave Paul the reality that God's power at work in his life, that God's will was going to get done. It gave Paul a certain amount of power to engage the challenges in front of him, the strength to keep on, even though life could drain him. Look at Philippians chapter 1, verse 19. For I know that through your prayers... And God's provision of the spirit of Jesus Christ, what has happened to me will turn out for my deliverance. He says, I know. When all this stuff's going on, ultimately I'm going to be delivered. Now we know the rest of the story. He actually dies. He, when he talks about deliverance, it's not pointing to him being free of the shackles or free of the criticism. Never goes away. 
but he's delivered because ultimately he puts his trust in God's power and God's purpose and God's priority and what ultimately his life was about takes greater shape and has more impact even though the circumstances of his life are difficult. He adjusts his perspective. He gets his priorities right and he takes confidence not in his ability but in God's ability to get the right things done. He says, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage, there it is again, so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. He wasn't living in a fantasy world. He knew things were rough. Whether I die or whether I live, Christ is going to be exalted. My life is going to lift him up. So he identifies two sources of hope, and maybe you need these today. He says, one source of my hope is the prayers of other people, the prayers of others. I think that sometimes, without trying to be overly dramatic, what sustains me and the ministry of this church is your prayers. I don't think that we can evaluate highly enough the power of prayer to change things, to move things, to change us, to give us right perspective. That's why I'm encouraging you to pray for prayers as a result of this message today. God, help me to know that with your power, nothing can destroy me. So I don't know all that you're going through, but I know this, that God's power can give you hope. And his hope that we have is often for me lifted up by the prayers of other people. Sometimes people say to me, I'm praying for you, or I prayed for you. It's a big deal. My trusted group of friends, would you pray for me? And I know that they will go to God on my behalf. But the other thing that gave Paul a sense of hope was the help of God's spirit. God's Holy Spirit that knows no boundaries. A little bit later on in this passage, he's going to write these words in Philippians 4.13. I can do all this through Christ who gives me strength. And that word all is an all-encompassing word. All the things I have to face, I can do not because of my own strength, but because of Christ who gives me strength. Now, this is not a slogan for sports. I can hit this home run through Christ who gives me strength, although if you want to employ it for that, feel free. It's not about a marathon runner. I can make it past the 26-mile marker because Christ gives me strength, although it's fine to employ it. What he's saying is this, all the things God wants for me to do in my life, I can do. It's not just a slogan. It literally was the marching order of his life. It's not me, it's Christ. And Christ in my life can accomplish all Christ wants to accomplish in my life. I know this. There is no devil in hell. There is no circumstance. There's no way in which your hands are tied that is more powerful than the work of God in your life. And so when we pray the prayer, God, help me to know that with your power, nothing can devastate me. Nothing can destroy me. Nothing can stop the movement of your agenda. As long as I follow your power and trust you. I can do all the things that you want me to do in my life. It begins to write our perspective when we think and pray like that. It begins to put our perspectives, our, our, our problems into right perspective. It right-sizes our problems. Here's another prayer that we can pray right from the words of Paul. Number four there. God, help me to fulfill your purposes for my life. Help me to fulfill your purposes for my life. Here's how Paul wrote it. He says, for me, for to me, like in my perspective, the way I see things, for me, to live is Christ, yes, but to die, uh-oh, is what? Gain. Whether I live or die, if I'm here 
I'm with Christ. But if I die, I'm with him all the more. This is a guy wrestling with purpose and meaning in life. And he's coming to the final days, the final hours. And he's trying to understand, did it all make sense? And his summary statement on all that is, if I live, it's awesome. I'm going to live for Christ. But if I die, I get to be with him. Pretty empower, it's pretty powerful, the perspective. And it actually doesn't stop him in his tracks. It motivates him all the more to live out the purpose that God has for his life. He says, if I'm to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. I'm going to work to my last breath for the Lord. Yet what shall I choose? He says, I don't know. I'm torn between the two. I desire to, to depart and to be with Christ. I'm getting tired. This is hard. Part of me wants to go on. This is not fatalism. He's just saying, I'm ready to be with Christ. I long for that connection. But it is more necessary that you remain, for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith. So that through my being with you again, your boasting in Christ will abound on account of me. He says, I am going to choose, not that it's totally his choice, but if I can choose, I'm going to stay here because I want to give my life so that your joy and progress can be made complete. I want to be here to invest in this that we're doing together, Paul says. Now that phrase, I want you to contemplate with me. The next blank, it says, for me to live is, don't fill it in yet, for me to live is. How would you fill that out if you were totally honest? Paul says, for me to live is Christ. But how would you answer it? What is your life based on? I don't know about you, but if you watch TV, it doesn't take long to see what our society is based on. What our advertisements tell us what's important. Your life will be more complete it will be better if you buy these shoes with this particular mark on them. Your life will feel more fulfilled. You'll feel more like a man if you buy this particular car with this logo. You will. Watch this advertisement. We'll convince you. Your life will feel better if you drink this drink, buy these clothes. You're going to feel more fulfilled as a person. And that's the implicit thing that advertisement does. We will meet your needs, make you feel better about you. So our society says, to some degree, that for us to live is our possessions. You know? For us to live, it's, it's get all you can. Have the best. You deserve a break today. That's an old one. Remember it? Yeah. I could go through all the, 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 the slogans, and you would be able to remember them because they're memorable. You know why they're memorable? It's not just that they're memorable, but they resonate with us. There's something in us that longs for that to be true, and we hope that that product we buy, and if we can't afford it, we'll put it on time. You know, we'll buy it over time. We hope that that thing will fill that longing in us. And that's why people at Christmas time use their credit cards and just buy, 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 and some of us are still paying for Christmas gifts we bought five years ago. We are. Because we believe that those possessions will make us happy or they'll make our kids happy. And if our kids are happy, we'll feel successful as parents. And Paul says, you may need to wrestle through that, but let me just give you the ultimate. Your life isn't in your possessions, it's in Christ. And sometimes if you watch television, you get the sense that your life is really about pleasure, feeling good, getting your, your urges met. Or maybe it's in power or position, possibly popularity. For me to live is to be popular. And so you see people cash in their integrity and their character all the time to be popular. 
to fit in with a particular crowd. They give up their perspective and their identity and they assume the identity of the crowd. But Paul says, for me to live, it's really all about Jesus. And that allows them then to engage all the difficulties of life and still have joy. Here's what they could do. They could take a lot from him, but they could not take away his purpose. They could change his circumstance, but they couldn't take away his purpose for existing, his reason for being there. And no matter how hard he was fought from inside, in terms of his close-knit group of friends, or how hard he was fought from the outside, he gave himself to making sure that the people in this world had a better picture of Jesus and that their progress in the faith got the attention it deserved. And it begs a question for us. What is your purpose for existing? I want to suggest to you the only complete answer that fills every area of our life with the right things is that somehow our purpose for being aligns with God's purpose for your being. I don't know all of you and all the reasons why God has you here and what he wants to get done in and through your life. But I know that regularly asking the question, what is my purpose? Why am I here? What does God want to accomplish through my life? I know what that does is it writes you internally. It makes things balanced. But it gives you a perspective about the world around you. When I'm struggling with issues of leadership, of parenting, of, of parenting, of, of, of being a, a, a husband, when I'm struggling with those issues, if I pause, I'm going to tell you a little exercise. If I pause and I pray one of these prayers, God, help me to see this through your perspective. Like before I land on how I'm going to view this, help me to see this thing as you see it. I'm telling you, very often the needle begins to swing back to healthy. God, would you help me as I look at this thing? Would you help me to make these decisions by your priorities, not mine? God, would you help me to realize no matter how difficult this is, absolutely nothing can destroy me, devastate me, or stop your good work in my life. Nothing can do that. You're more powerful than all that stuff. And God, would you help me in this situation? It's tough, but would you help me to not think about my purposes or your purposes out here? Would you help me, God, to think about your purposes in this exact situation? And when I kind of go through those exercises, it's amazing how much I, can, I am able to hold on to joy even if I don't like the situation I'm in. I don't like the situation in my marriage. I don't like this parenting thing. I don't like this thing in my church. I don't like this financial thing. I don't like what they're saying over there. But God, I ultimately, what I want more than anything, I want to like what you're doing in this world and in my life. I don't know all that you're going through this holiday season. I hope it is full of joy and happiness and all the circumstances in your life are correct and right and you feel good about them. But if not, maybe in these four prayers, you could start peeling back the layers and get down to what? I think it's the bedrock of existence that God's agenda becomes your agenda. And you begin to long and want the things he wants for you. My mentor gave me two big statements here, and then we'll take our next steps. He said, if it's good for God's kingdom, then it's good for you. So as you look at what's going on in the world, the church world sometimes can be dog-eat-dog, believe it or not. But as you look at the church world, as you look at your world, if it's good for God's kingdom, just go ahead and decide right now, it's good for you. 
doesn't matter whether you like it or not. Just choose. If it's good for God's kingdom, it's good for you. The other thing he would often challenge me on when we would talk about just the uphill climb of leadership and in ministry and how life naturally will pull and tug at you no matter what you do with your world. He would say, at the end of the day, you really are just playing for an audience of one. And it didn't matter if anybody else approved. If God looked at you and smiled, you won. Now, I have gone to those two statements over and over and over again. I'm giving you four prayers to pray here as you look at this holiday season and what's going on in your life. But right now, I'd like you to take out your Connect card and let's take a couple steps together as a congregation. I'm really excited about our journey through Philippians. We'll pick up uh, chapter 2 next week. But right now, I want to ask you a very simple question. Are you in a relationship with Jesus? Have you decided to make him the Lord and Savior of your life? The first step to aligning with his purposes is to let him be in charge. So the Bible says we do that in a very simple way. We, we accept what's been done for us. We come to him with nothing. In fact, we come to him broken. We come to him with nothing to give. The, the biblical kind of shorthand way of saying that is we come as sinners, imperfect, broken. Unable to fix it ourselves. And we say to him, I got nothing except brokenness. Will you take it? And he says, yeah, I'll take your sin and I'll cover it. I'll make it right. I'll repair it. I'll fix your nature. And then we say to him, all right, so I've been leading, but would you lead now? Would you be the Lord? That's the Bible way of saying it. Would you be the Lord? Would you be in charge of my life? And I'll take your priorities as my own. If you haven't done that, I want to give you an opportunity to do that by checking next step A and putting the card in the offering bucket when it comes by. We're going to pray for you about that in just a minute, and you can find your own words. You can use my words and say to God, God, would you take away my sin? Would you cover it? Would you forgive it? Would you wash it away? And I'm going to put my trust on what you've done through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, as the covering for my sin and as the connection to you. I want you to lead my life. And then we'll communicate with you if you put that card in the offering bucket later on in the week about what it means to be a son or daughter of God. Or Next step, B, today I'm choosing to be baptized. I know first service, a lot of you didn't see it, but last week we had six people, six people baptized right here on our stage. And we celebrated with them, each one, the story of redemption that God was writing in their lives. And if you haven't done that yet, I'd love to chat with you about it. One of our team would. Just check it and we'll begin that conversation. Next step, C says, I'm praying one of the four prayers each morning this week. So if you'll check that, I'll send you all four of those one-sentence prayers. And you pick which one needs to connect with you. Your perspective, your priorities, your power, your purpose. And we'll send that to you and pray about it. Hey, who would say, next step D, my family will participate in Four C's Reverse Advent. Ten to twelve bucks, but doing the devotional. And I'll make sure that you receive a little bit of encouragement through the email this week if you check that box. Don't forget to pick up a box on your way out the door if you don't have kids that you're picking up. Our next step, he says, I'll give to our 4C Christmas gift. We're calling it Seeds of Change. We're planting seeds into four major ministry areas. And next week, I'll tell you about one of the ones that has gripped my heart for about a, about a half a dozen years. Let's pray about these things right now. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are bigger than all of our challenges. You're bigger than all of our problems. God, today, we come to you with heads bowed and eyes closed to the world around us so that we can focus on you. We want your picture to be made bigger 
not our problems made bigger. We want to see you brighter, not our problems more clearly. I pray, God, that you would write our perspective, that we would do a little work, even in this prayer, Lord, about the priorities that we have in our lives, and we'd ask a simple question. Are are our priorities your priorities? God, I pray that we would find strength in your power, that in nothing, 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 no weapon formed against us can prosper because you're more powerful than everything. Lord, I pray that sometime over these next few weeks, as we pull back maybe a little bit from our jobs or as we ramp up into the holiday season, I pray, Lord, that we would think about your grand purposes in our life. What did you put us here for? Father, I join with those that are declaring, Jesus, wash away my sins. Cover me by your blood. I trust you with my life. God, I lift up to you this reverse Advent project that we're doing and our My Christmas Gift offering. God, we want you to use these tools to further your kingdom work in our city and beyond. We pray it in your name, the name of Jesus, God's strong and holy son. Amen and amen.